There's a story told of a, a rich man who was well set up in life. He had all the things that um, such financial security could afford, but he found that he was restless in his heart. He was just not at peace with life. He found that even when he was eating the best meals, when he was drinking the best wines, when he was enjoying recreation that uh, earlier in his life he'd never been able to afford, he was finding disquiet. He remembered earlier days that were struggles, days when he uh, didn't know where provision was going to come from, but he remembered that in those days, uh, colors were brighter, that life had more zest to it and more meaning. So he sought out a rabbi, and he, uh, this rabbi was well known for a guy that was able to help people who were troubled in their spirits and souls. And so he went and laid out before him all that was going on in his life. When he finished the uh, story, the rabbi looked at him for a while and asked him to go over to the window in his office that looked out upon the town. And uh, the man looked out the window for a while, and the rabbi asked him, he said, uh, so what do you see? And he said, well, I see busy city streets. I see people scurrying different places from the looks on their face. They have things that they think are important that they're going to accomplish. And yet I see others talking animatedly, laughing with each other. I see children scurrying about and running and chasing a ball. And the rabbi asked him then to leave the window and come over and stand in a different place, this time before a mirror. And he said, so now what do you see? And he said, I see a, a man, well-dressed, aging well. I see myself. And he said, the rabbi said to him, the glass in the window and the glass in the mirror is the same. When you add a little bit of silver, behind one of the glasses, the perspective changes. And um, the reason I'm telling that story is because to get your attention, but also just to, to remind you that we've been through three synoptics. They've told the story of Christ, each one from a little bit different point of view, but much of the material interchangeable. Some of the parables and stories the same. Tonight we come to the Gospel of John, and we're going to be looking at something that is 90% of the material in it is different than that which is found in the other, the other Gospels. And um, what my prayer is, and prayer for this week and next week, is that as we look at this book in depth, that our perspective of Jesus Christ will change that will gain a deeper appreciation for who he is, that will understand what John was trying to convey in a way that none of the other apostles, at least that we have the record of, looked at Christ and saw. It's a profoundly interesting book. The simplest Greek in the whole of the New Testament, but the, probably the deepest concepts found in that same Greek language. So tonight I hope to uh, begin the process of helping you to change a little bit of your perspective 
as we look at this book. But I'm getting ahead of myself. I know I'm supposed to do some details. I gave you a three-page outline there. It's got all the details on it. The outline is from, I forget where I got that one. It's a, a simple outline of John. It, it's contained in one page. Some of them get very elaborate, but I'm, I find myself um, already changing that outline as I'm going through to suit what I'm going to try to share with you. Um, I've saved you a lot of work by giving you the material in front of you. I read this uh, past couple weeks a commentary by D.A. Carson, who is a teaching fellow at uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. And he spends 100 pages just before he even gets to anything in John's Gospel. So I saved you a lot of work, and <laughs> you can thank me later. <laughs> so let me deal with a few of the things here that we, we normally do. And these are important details, but just to set it in perspective, the title of the book and all of its earliest manuscripts. When John penned this, he didn't write a title on top of it. It was a, a, a story or the biography of Jesus Christ. But from the earliest ones, the earliest copies we have, the earliest pieces of manuscript, all attribute this to John. They, they will all say at the top of it, according to John. And then later on, some scribe somewhere along the way said the gospel according to John and the gospel was added. It doesn't detract from it in any way, but John didn't write it and say, affirm anything we can see, the gospel according to John. The reason for that is because John's name is not found anywhere in the whole book which is interesting itself. I know that none of the authors of any of the Gospels attributed the Gospel to themselves. It's been through other things that we've been able to ferret out that information. And John's Gospel is the same. Um, as I said, his name appears nowhere in the book. And I think that the four Gospels, the reason that you don't know who the author was according to them giving that information is it's a sign of humility. Especially as I've looked at this book and had the chance to interact with it, I find that John would have been one of the last ones to want to tell you that he had put himself forward. He wants to put Christ forward and that's what he does in all of it. The earliest church fathers that we have any kind of record of ascribe this authorship to John. Irenaeus was a disciple of Polycarp. Polycarp was a disciple of John. And Irenaeus states clearly that John was the author of this book. Eusebius, who was an early church historian, states that Clement of Alexander wrote that John, being aware of the contents of the other Gospels, set down deliberately to write those things which were not there, but with a different purpose. And he also attributes this to, uh, to John. There's some internal things. Um, it never strikes you that John never calls himself by name, but he is constantly saying he, he declares himself to be the disciple that Jesus loved. Does that sound as, like arrogance to you at all? If I, if I was to walk into the church and stand up to preach on a Sunday morning and say, well, I am uh, the pastor that Jesus loved, you probably would not be happy with me. Because coming from me, it would be arrogance. <laughs> but with John, it's not. What John is trying to tell us in the deepest humility is, hey, I'm one of the sons of Bonerges. 
I'm one of those fiery personalities that would have called down fire upon the Samaritans. I'm the least person that you might attribute um, Jesus working with and calling into apostleship. And so he calls himself that not because he thought he was special in the eyes of Christ, but to say, if he loved me, he also will love you because I deserve it a lot less than you do. Um, John wanted to focus on Christ himself. The internal evidence from this gospel tells us that it was indeed an eyewitness account. And it had to be penned by one of the disciples because we read in John 20, 30, therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. So it's either an eyewitness or one who was a companion of an eyewitness. And all the other things we have tell us that it was definitely John that was the one who was writing it. The gospel was written by a Palestinian Jew that means one who is very familiar with Palestine, the, uh, the environs of, of Israel, the, the place where the 12 tribes settled in. We see that because he oftentimes will take time to explain a custom. There was a Jewish custom because he knows that this is going to have broader readership than just the Jews. So in John 2.6, the first of Jesus' signs, that wedding at the at Cain of Galilee, we read, Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification. He's got to clarify that because to the Romans, well, what were the water pots there for, you know? They would have probably thought you were drinking them or something. Um, so, and there's a familiarity with the Palestinian architecture. John 10:40 says, he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing and was staying there. Interestingly, archaeologists have said this shows that this isn't an authentic person who wrote the book until in Jordan, on the other side of the Jordan River, they discovered a whole place. They had dug it out. It was under feet and feet and feet of dirt and debris, the place where John probably was baptizing. There were pools there set aside for just that very thing, and it's exactly as it's described in the Bible. John 5.2 also says, Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate, a pool which is called in Hebrew Bethsaida, having five porticos. Again, no such place existed. If you go to um, Jerusalem today, you won't find that pool of Siloam down there in any place. But archaeological digs, which have gone down 150 feet, if you can imagine that much debris, because of the times that city has been sacked and so forth, they found exactly that, that the pool, and it, lo and behold, there were um, the bases of five pillars therefore holding up a porch for a building. And so it authenticates that this person had been an eyewitness to these things. He was familiar with Palestine at that particular time. I'm going to save you a lot of time. I'm not going to argue about this. It's the last of the Gospels that were written, probably written between 80 and 90 A.D. Um, John was the longest lived of the apostles, as you know, and he penned it probably in the last part of his life. Um, what is its purpose? 
John was aware of the advances I said that were recorded in the other synoptic gospels. He had them available to him. And yet he realized there were things that were not recorded in them that he thought were important. And John has a different focus, which we'll look at here in a second. I think he wrote what I believe to be the most theological of the gospels. It uh, shows a profound depth. We're gonna look tonight at the uh, prologue, just the first 18 verses. And I'll tell you why we're gonna do that and spend so much time on it. But when you begin to plumb the depths of that, I, I have 46 pages of notes that I wrote as I was reading different commentaries and, and going back and pulling out different things that I studied on the first 18 verses. And that's just me pulling stuff out. And I didn't bring 46 pages with me tonight, so you can relax. <laughs> but anyway, I'm just saying that this is a, a profoundly deep gospel. And it's a beautiful look at the life of Christ. Um, the theological purpose was to demonstrate conclusively that Jesus was God incarnate. That he was God enfleshed that men might comprehend who God is and then comprehending who he is through Jesus, they would believe. Um, I think I can see most clearly in the prologue as we'll look at it. And then John doesn't keep us in a mystery about why he wrote the, this particular book. He says in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in the book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. The gospel is selective. All of the Gospels are. In fact, John says at the last part of his book, if everything that Jesus said or did were written down, I suppose that all of the books in the world couldn't contain it all. And uh, we have that, that beautiful hymn, The Love of God, you know. If uh, the oceans were ink filled and the sky of parchment made and every man on earth a scribe and every stock on earth a quill, you know, to love the right or to write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry. It still wouldn't be enough to be able to do that. And so John is selective. He picks out certain things from the life of Christ to make this case that Jesus is indeed God, fully God. Um, these signs were selected that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. So John's purpose, I think, is really twofold. There's a, a direction for the unbeliever. It's evangelistic. You put the information out before the non-believer of who Christ is, the signs that he did, the, the things that he talked about, the way he conducted his life, and in place after place after place accompanying those signs, and then finally at the cross of Christ, you see, and men believed, and men believed, and men believed. So it's evangelistic. I found that this book is, is one of those things that you want to take your Jehovah's Witness doorstep evangelist right to this book. If you can tolerate doing that, you know, and, and spend time. I'm impatient with them usually, and, and I, I just want to brush them off, so I, I tell them that uh, they're, never mind what I tell them. <laughs> anyway, it's evangelistic. But its purpose is also preserving 
all of us waver in our faith. We get uh, the doctor's report. Uh, Lee, could you come in? And could you, uh, you know, we, we want to do a consult. What's the problem? Oh, we'll tell you when you get here. Just love that. When can I come in? Oh, two weeks, it'd be fine, you know. <laughs> so for two weeks, you're stirred, you know, and so forth. Our, our faith wavers. You know, that's why we continue to study, to pray, to put ourselves under the word of God and so forth. Because, but John's purpose here is preserving. It's to shore up your faith. It's to help you to, to come to grips not only with who Christ is, but to recognize his goodness to you. Now, there are a lot of ways to break the book down. I've chosen to do it the way that I'm going to present it in the next, uh, today and, and uh, next week. But I'm, I'm breaking it down this way. We're going to look tonight just at the prologue, those first 18 verses, because they really chart the course for the whole book. The themes that John will reiterate over and over again throughout the book are found in the prologue. We're going to look at it in depth and then trace some of those out a little bit. Uh, secondly, we'll look at the seven signs. The, uh, the prologue is through verse 18 of chapter 1. Uh, the second set begins in 119 and goes through 1250. There's an end of public, the public ministry of Christ in 1250. Jesus makes one more offer of himself to the Jews. He is rejected. He then goes private. And he begins to work only with his, his disciples. But that book is often called, that section is often called the book of signs. Because it goes to seven particular signs that John has chosen to pull out to make his case that Christ is, uh, the, is God incarnate. Um, and that, that section will cover three plus years of Jesus' life. So we cover quickly the whole expanse of Jesus's ministry life. And then we come to 13.1 and suddenly we're in the last hours of Jesus's life. So all the way from the years of ministry to the last hours. The third section is the upper room discourse 13.1 to 17.26. And then fourthly, we'll look at the Jesus's agony, betrayal, arrest, his trial and crucifixion, 18.1 through 19.42. And finally, we'll look at the Lord's resurrection and appearances, uh, Lord willing, 20 in chapter 20. So, um, as I said, there are many ways we can break this book down. And I've left you some things in your, your uh, outline there. If you want to do a self-study, I've given you some, some key words, some key concepts that are symbolic that John uh, brings out and reiterates over and over again. For instance, the word believe. It's used 98 times in the book, and this book is written that you might believe, so that's not surprising. What is surprising is it's never used in its noun form. In John, anytime you have the concept of belief, it is used in an active form that requires an active expression in a verbal form. So in my mind, that tells us that John equates belief with some kind of outward expression, some kind of action. And that puts the lie to this intellectual belief. I can believe all these facts, but never change my lifestyle. And uh, John's book will just absolutely convince you that unless faith is accompanied by some kind of a change in the person's life, then that person's faith is in question. 
Then he goes through the concepts of life and death. That's the second thing. Life in John is always equated with eternal life. It emphasizes the quality of life one has once they've come into a relationship with God. It's contrasted with death, which also is a quality of life, but it's a quality of life apart from knowledge of God. And so those concepts will come out over and over again as we go through it. There's light and darkness. Um, John uses the word light 23 times to emphasize the believer's ability to comprehend and understand the things of God. He's been enlightened. Light has, been, has come into his darkened mind, and he's able to understand things. Those who refuse to see, refuse to understand, remain in darkness. Their, their world is, is completely different. So this light is a theme that will follow all the way through to the enlightenment of the centurion at the foot of the cross, who finally says, surely this man was the son of God. And then this word world, um, it's used 78 times in John and as many as 10 different ways. So when you say God so loved the world, people will use that to say, well, yes, Christ died for every man and, and, and Christ's love is for every man, but you have to qualify world and what it really means. And every time you run into that, that word, you have to say, what is its context? What is being said here? Is it all inclusive of the whole of mankind? Or is it inclusive of a certain group of men within the structure of mankind? Because it can be referred to them in that way. And if you want to get some enlightenment on this in a really dense way, come to Gary's Sunday school class on Sunday because he's going to go into this whole concept. Right, Gary? We hope so. Yeah. No, we don't hope so. We know so, Gary. We may not get that far. <laughs> okay. And then there's Jew and Jewish. Um, you and I, when we use those terms, we will say the, the Jews, you know, and by that we mean pretty much the whole race. This is characteristic of the Jew or something like that. John uses that word um, expressively in different ways. He uses it 71 times. Sometimes it does refer just to the people in general as distinct from Gentiles. But most often it refers to the enemies those who are opposed to Christ. So this book is very anti-Israel in the sense of her place is no longer the same place that she had prior to the coming of Christ. It doesn't mean that God hasn't a purpose for her yet or any of that kind of stuff, but it does mean he's characterizing them as the ones to whom the light came, who rejected the light, and that light then turned its focus away from them onto another group of people. And so it's characteristic of those who are the enemies of God. So those are some of the ways, and there's other words in there that John uses over and over again, because it's a very symbolic book. And you can do a, a study of one of those words in John, looking at the context of each one of the places those words are used. That'll give you a lot of insight into where John is going and what he's trying to talk about. So does that make sense? I'm a 50 caliber air-cooled tongue up here, so if you've got a question, you're just going to have to interrupt me. Doing good, Lee. All right, let's keep going. Okay, if you turn into John 1, we're going to look at the prologue. 
And as you're turning there, I just want you to understand that um, the Gospel of John is not written with strict chronology in mind. There's going to be some places I'll show you, hopefully, as we get through this, where you see where the chronology broke. There's a, at the end of chapter 14, he says, Jesus says to his disciples there in the upper room, let us leave this place. And then he goes on and he gives two more chapters of instruction. What is he doing? Is he at the head of the train heading down to the Kindron to uh, you know, the Garden of Gethsemane? Is teaching as he's going down and John's back there writing everything down? No, there's an excursus here. You know, and John goes back and grabs some of the things that were already written, but he'd gotten ahead of himself and he brings it back in into the, at that particular point in time. So we're going to look at that. The gospel really runs along thematic lines, and John's not particularly concerned with a strict chronological order. Um, he begins his gospel with some introductory remarks that we label the prologue. It's likely that John wrote this biography of Christ, then went back in a later time and reviewed what he had written and made some changes in it, which are evident if you begin to look at it and study it, because some parts of it you go, well, that doesn't really follow very well, or that's a pretty abrupt thing. But that's John writing the whole thing as he does it, reviewing it. And I think what he did was like what I did tonight. You have an outline in front of you and so forth. After I pared down everything from my notes in class, I went back and wrote my outline. I think John had written the, that book of signs, the things that Jesus did and said. He may have written the other parts, and as he reviewed that before he really sent that out or let people have it, he went back again, and that's when he wrote the prologue. This authorship is a partnership between the human and the divine. God gives man freedom to write and to edit and to think through and to come back and redo that while he superintends the whole thing so that what we eventually have is exactly what he wanted us to have. So I think that John did that with this because the wording in this prologue is so precise, so careful. Every word is so meaningful that it took a good bit of thought you know, God didn't just grab these guys and say, sit and write, you know. That's what they, the Muslims believe Muhammad got. You know, God sat him down and said, write, and he just couldn't help it. It was automatic stuff coming out of his pen hand. That isn't the way God superintended the scriptures. And that way we know that the personalities of the men came into the, the writing but all of it guided in such a way that God left us with exactly the record that he wanted us to have. So I think you'll see that as we go along with it. The prologue is really important because it's a condensation of some of those major themes that we looked at. And uh, so we're going to look at it closely. And then next week, we'll get through the rest of the gospel, Lord willing, or at least a good try, you know. Okay, so we're looking at verses 1 through 18. I'm not going to read them. I'm just going to go along and read them as we come to them. But we have his eternality. Um, that's chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Sherry, you have that there. Would you mind reading that for us? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Okay, so here we have the Word, whoever that is, whatever that is, we have that placed in relationship with God himself. 
Now you have to remember that John's writing to two different cultures and he's very aware of that. He's writing to the Jew and to the Jew, this word logos, this word would have fallen on their ears in a certain way, hearkening back to Genesis 1 as we're going to look at here. But to the Jew or to the Greek, that word would have had a whole different concept. And so John's trying to um, be aware of both audiences as he writes. How is this going to sound to the Jew? How's it going to sound to the Gentile? Because their concepts of all this were very, very different. Um, the first thing that we have to look at, though, before I get into breaking this down a little bit, is this. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but when we say, how does the Bible begin, we will say what? In the beginning. In the beginning, God. Genesis 1.1. This prologue actually starts out before that beginning. Mm -hmm. It takes us back in time before that beginning that Genesis starts. <laughs> this is now the beginning of the Bible, and that's exactly what he intended. He intended us to, to take those words in the beginning so that both began the same way, and he intends us for the Jew to throw them right back to Genesis 1.1 to make them think of all the things that were there because some of the concepts like light, God said, let there be light. That comes out. Light was the life of all men. Well, that's a part of the theme and the, the prologue here. And he intends to throw the Jew right back into that. And what he's trying to tell the Jew is that in that beginning, when God said, let us create man in our image, he's taking him back to the interactions of the Trinity prior to anything else being created. This is actually the beginning of the Bible in, in a profound way that John is doing this. It precedes um, Genesis 1.1. And some have tried to read a meaning into Genesis 1 or into John 1, 1 in the beginning as if Christ was the beginning of creation, therefore a created being. Do you know any groups that propagate that? Well, Mormons. Mormons? Jehovah's Witnesses? I don't think the Mormons know when anything happened. You know, they, who, who began everything? I, I've never had one of them articulate that to me, but again, I'm impatient and I don't give them a lot of chance. But, um, you know, but um, they tried to take it back as though Christ was the first creation and he then created all things. But um, it's stated even more strongly that that couldn't have happened. John is clear about the concept. In verse 3 it says, nothing was made without him. Logically, doesn't that tell you that he himself wasn't made before he made everything else? You know, you, you have to look at that whole thing in that light. And there's another relationship that needs to be brought out regarding John 1.1 and the parallels to Genesis 1 in regard to the Logos. To the Jew, these opening phrases, as I said, would have taken him immediately back to Genesis 1.1. When God created the heavens and the earth, said, let there be light. To the Jew, this impelling force of God speaking into the darkness was a personal force. God was intimately, personally involved in, the, in all of creation. It came out from his being as an expression of who he was, but it was very personal. His 
intimately involved in all of it. He isn't it, like um, the animists would say. He isn't a tree, he isn't those things, but he's intimately aware of that. My wife and I were taking a walk on the Poudre Trail and we'd had a wind just the other night, so a lot of little twigs are down there. And so she said, wow, these are all butted out and so forth. And I said, what amazes me is that we have a God that is so great that every one of those twigs snapped off according to his knowledge and his design, fell and is landed on the ground according to his knowledge and his design. Now that means absolutely, it's not world changing. What bud fell off of a tree onto the ground? But our God is so great that he has knowledge of all that, not only knowledge of it, but he directed it. He is intimately involved in his creation, in all of that. Think what that does to you, who are one of the heights of his creation. Think of what that does to the moments of your life. If he's that intimately involved in a twig falling off of a, a tree, how intimately involved is he in your life? And to the Jew, it told him that God designed all this, spoke it into place, and he is the one within it. And we're going to see that he's the one who's sustaining it. That is also said there. It's both personal and it's intimate. And uh, it's later associated with Jesus in, in verse 14 of the prologue. Now, how would the Greek have heard that in the beginning? Greek philosophy believed, like we do today, that all life comes from antecedent life. But Greek philosophy didn't have a personal deity. It had many deities, but it didn't have a personal deity. And so in their minds, there was this logos. This logos was an impersonal force that existed in the universe. Sort of like some scientists have speculated, Gary, you're better at this than I am, that energy has always existed and that that's what maybe gave impetus to everything that's come to be. But, um, you know, the people with intelligent design, how many of you have seen some of those movies about tele intelligent design? And we all go, oh, that's great. Scientists are discovering there's got to be a God. Well, to them, there may be some kind of force in the universe, but they're not willing to label it the Christian God. They might be becoming theists, but they're not you know, Christians by any means. They're just saying that there's intelligence behind all that's happened, but they're not willing to say that we can know anything about that intelligence, just that it has to exist. Am I wrong about that, Gary? Is that pretty much it? So whenever I get into science, I'm in trouble. I mean, you're looking at a guy that got a D in algebra because the teacher liked him. You know, so I was in that part of the class that made the top half possible, you know. So when it comes to science, I have to speak gingerly, okay? So Genesis 1 brings the very idea of the four, the idea that God personally was involved in all this. And shadowed in Genesis 1 is something that's a mystery to the Jew even to today, and it's the multiple of the Godhead because you have God the Father who initiates creation. It's God the Spirit who carries out the actions that have been commanded by God the Son. And all three are there in shadow form and progressive revelation will later on bring that to the front. But John is very clear in this setting the scene 
for that final revelation of God in, in chapter verse 14, where that word becomes flesh and actually becomes a, a person we can relate to. So the presence of the word, uh, here it's called logos, but um, what is the logos? What is he trying to express here? He's saying that it is the verbalization of creature. It's the very of creation. It's the very nature of God to reveal Himself. If you think about it, we're blind in our trespasses and sins, dead in our trespasses and sins. We are unable to apprehend God. It's been said over and over as we've gone through the uh, books of this uh, Route 66 then no man would have written this. The theology we hold is not one that would come out of man's imagination because it makes God both loving and, and judgmental. It makes him at times harsh seeming and, and so forth. Men wouldn't have written that. And um, yet here John is trying to tell us that God has revealed himself. Everything you and I know about God we only know because he's revealed himself to us. If it wasn't for that revelation, we would be stumbling around the dark with supposed ideas. And that's basically where philosophy takes you and some of the other religions of the world. Um, Hebrews 1 tells us that Jesus, whom verse 14 will tell us was the word become flesh, was the express image of God. And what he, the author of Hebrews is trying to tell us is there is what Jesus said to Philip in John 14. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. I am the full revelation of who he is. Now you know what God is like in a way that you can fully comprehend because you have seen me. Um, so the Logos, the Word, is the full expression of God. Throughout the Old Testament, we continually read phrases like, and the Word of the Lord came to so-and-so, or, and God said, and God spoke. Over and over again, that was the action that initiated from God and expressed himself in some way. And what we see in the intricacies of the creation is that expression of a, a dynamic and of complex, in that sense, God. Okay, does that make sense? Am I making sense? Okay. When John used Logos in John 1, he's equating Jesus with that fullest expression of God, his fullest revelation to man, as we said, is hinted at in John 1. Um, finally, the Word of God isn't impersonal. The Logos is a, a very personal expression of God. It was in a personal way that we can see Jesus treating the woman uh, caught in adultery. We can see him, I know that's a questionable passage, bad illustration, but nonetheless, we, we see him, you know, showing that kind of thing. Uh, the disciples are saying to the blind man, shut up, stop bothering him. And Jesus says, you know, what do you want? And another man comes and he says, please come down. My, my daughter is on the, at the point of death. And Jesus immediately picks up and goes. We see God expressing himself in a, a dynamic caring for mankind. We see that even in Jesus' expressions throughout John, where he continually presents himself to the Jews to be rejected over and over again. And he does so in such a way that they can apprehend, pull in the Old Testament statements about him and see it, him fully um, enfleshed in that way. Um, so it's not impersonal. And that's what you've got in our universe 
If God isn't the force who has done all this, if the Lagos has not been revealed, then you have what Francis Schaeffer called an impersonal timeless chance. And, uh, you know, okay, so what is the age of the universe now, according to scientists, Gary? Uh, 10 to 20 billion years. 10 to 20 billion. But, hey, if we need more time, yeah. we can always find it, yeah. you know? Yeah. It's all speculation anyway, because they, they can't get it done <laughs> in the amount of time. How many of us have seen a horse become a dog in our, our lifetime? You know, oh, well, we just need a couple billion more a year to make that happen, you know? So anyway, um, I'm off subject. <laughs> so it has implications for us because the universe isn't impersonal. For you and I, there isn't anything in our lives that isn't personally given to us by God, isn't personally brought into our lives. You know, I'm uh, working with a guy right now, and I'm reading a book to him uh, by Johnny Erickson Tata, and I love the way the book phrases things. Um, you know, Johnny Erickson Tata's been in a, a wheelchair for since she was 17, and she's nearly 70 now. And this man named Steve Estes, who came and, and uh, eventually wrote this book called God Weeps, When God Weeps, with her came into her hospital room. He was in high school with her. She was one of the in crowd. He was one of the, the nerds, you know, the, the Bible thumpers or whatever it was. And Steve Estes visited her after she'd had her accident. And she's sitting there with a, in a halo. And he looked at her and he had the effrontery to tell him, Johnny, I don't know why this has happened, but God put you in that wheelchair. Now that's blunt. That's hard for us to imagine. But the circumstances of your life and mine, we create them, but God is so superintending them that they're accomplishing his purpose. You and I are being made into living stones who will be built into an edifice to worship God for the rest of our lives. And you and I will fit exactly where God wants us to fit and exactly the place he wants us to be. And he's at work in our lives in that way every day to shape us and polish us in that way. So that's kind of the opening salvo, taking us back to a time before Genesis 1-1, back to a, a time when the Trinity planned everything and, and did it all and spoke it into existence, and the pre-incarnate Christ was there in that situation, and he's been there. He was, he's never not been there. So let's look at his pre-incarnate work then, uh, verses 3 through 5. Gary, you got your Bible open there? Would you read verses 3 through 5? All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Okay, so he sets kind of a broad thing, and now here we have the words relationship to creation. He makes the assertion that all created things were brought into being through the Word, through who will be revealed finally in John, er, verse 14, as Him, as Christ. And there's an emphatic emphasis in the Greek construction here. We might render that, this as, without Him, there was not even one thing made that has ever been made, or one thing created that has ever been created. 
There's a contrast in the, the tenses of verbs, too. It says, without him, nothing was made that was made, or things that were made. It's a, an aorist. And you guys are going, I, Lee, don't get into the Greek. I'm just doing this in as simple a way as I can because it's really important. We might expect a perfect there. The aorist is a one-time event, something that happened. We usually associate it with past, but it's a one-time thing that took place, okay? And so um, we might expect a perfect there because what he's talking about is they were made and they were also sustained. And um, the aorist gives us a, an understanding of that that he is the sustainer. He did all this. He flung things out into, um, into existence, and he's also maintained them. Paul picks up on the theme that's found in John here, John 1 and Colossians 1.17. He says, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That hold together is sunestemi, which means to keep it together and keep it from dissolving, from dissipating. When scientists study physics, Gary's talked about this, but it's an, a fascinating principle. When you get down into the, the structure of the atom, there's no way the scientists can figure out why the atom doesn't blow apart. The charges of the electrons and neutrons and whatever else is in there, those things should be causing not attraction to hold together, but something that blows out and explodes. Scientists don't know why these repelling particles don't do that, and so they speak in their ignorance about the fact that they're bonded by a, a strong force. That's what they label it, a strong force, and that's what binds. But nobody knows exactly what that is. They don't know what it is. They just call it some kind of force that we can't discern or, or understand. But if that strong force was removed for an instance, nothing that we know of about creation would maintain and hold together. It's speculation, but I think that strong force is the word of Christ. He is holding it together. I loved that sermon that Brett gave one time, Brett Hastings, when he talked about the globulous spit that flew from the soldier's mouth at Christ to insult him in the way that a human being can insult another was held together by the one being insulted out of love. That is an incredible picture to think about that, you know? And so um, Hebrew here tells us that things that we see were made by something unseen, and an unseen thing is this, the logos, the word of God that is, is spoken out there. Then the verse says, all things came into being through him, and through him was life, and the life was the light of men. And here John introduces the two concepts or themes. He talks about um, life and light. Life is an important theme throughout the whole thing. To some extent, the gospel begins and ends with this theme of life. Here we find in verse 4, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. In John 20, on the other end of it, verse 31, 30 and 31, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may what? Have life. Have life. 
have life in him. John 14, 6, Jesus declares openly, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except me. He's the one saying that I am the one who gives life both physically, Genesis 1-1, creation speaking into existence spiritually. Nicodemus, you must be born from above. You cannot regenerate yourself. You cannot give yourself spiritual life. That has to come from me also. I am the source of the physical life. I created the universe. I spoke it into existence. I maintain it to this very day. And I am the source of spiritual life. No man can have spiritual life apart from me creating that spiritual life in him. Questions, thoughts, comments? Speak up now. We we'll just keep going. Chuck? Uh, well, I've just it just fascinates me the what you were talking about and you know what Gary was teaching in that one class. You know, I've heard it a lot lately about uh -huh. you know the God particle and all this thing. Yeah. Uh, physicists are trying to find the very smallest particle within the particle and all that. And it just seems to me that they're like um, like when I was a kid, I had my first microscope. Uh -huh. And I'm looking at all the little different things going around and around. And they just have more expensive microscopes and magnetrons and things like that. And wow, look at this collision. <laughs> and that's about as far as they can go. Yeah. It's just like they're really well-paid, highly educated little kids looking at microscopes. <laughs> if you want to know where that search goes, you can go over to somebody's house that has a cat. Every once in a while, they get chasing their tail, you know, around and around and around you go. <laughs> oh, you have a cat. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Well, I'm glad I didn't say anything bad about cats. <laughs> it's been done. It's been done. It's been done. <laughs> well, anyway, I'm not trying to insult your cat, but that's it. That's it. Men chasing their tails. It's, it's just amazing. But we'll, we'll get into to more of that as we go on because... Jesus is going to be presented in that book of signs over and over and over again. And we're going to see over and over again, some believe, some do not believe. Some believe, some are hardened. And, and we see that over and over again. But Jesus finally stated it, didn't he? He said, you know, even if somebody rises from the dead, they won't believe. So, so this idea of life, John 10, 10, the thief comes to steal, to kill and destroy. I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. John 10, 24, I give them life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. In all the times, 35 times in the gospel, this word life is used and it's almost in every instance the word zoe, which is different than biological life. Biological life came into existence through the, the Logos speaking everything into creation. Zoological life, which is a, a different type of life uh, in, in qual quantity or quality, is, is spiritual life. And that word is used exclusively through John to live. And, and it's used 35 times directly, over 15 times it's used in a different form. So this is Zoe, the spiritual life. And Jesus is telling us or John is telling us through this that just as you had nothing to do with your first birth, your physical birth, 
None of us were in a gene pool someplace up in, in the, you know, heaven and shouted down to earth to our parents, come on, come on, let's get something done here so I can, I can come into existence. You know, that physical life that we have been granted is the, and the spiritual life are from the same source. He says that over and over and over again, and that's his point to Nicodemus. Also connecting John 1 with Genesis, we see in Genesis 2-7, they formed man from the dust of the earth and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Um, in the Hebrew, this is a lot clearer. When you and I hear words like breath, spirit, word, they sound like different concepts to us. But in Hebrew, the words breath and spirit are the same word. And this ruach, it even has a breathy sound to it. In Hebrew, the thought is that that which is expelled, the very essence of God, is that which Jesus is, is the very essence of the Godhead. He is the, the fullest manifestation of it. And, uh, and he is the one who gives life to all men. John 3, 19, 20, or 19 through 21 says, The light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifest as having been wrought in God. And so we have this qualitative thing. There's eternal life, that which is a life with God, and it is qualitatively different than those who only have biological life and have none, no life with God. In fact, theirs is called death. And John makes the contrast between those two things. So this Zoe provides light for us, and it's a spiritual spark that God gives to you and I to believe. Um, were some of you here on Sunday night when Travis did the order of, of salvation? That's a very profound thing to look at that. And where does it begin in the order that, that he gave us? Do you remember? Regeneration. What's that? Regeneration. Yeah, it begins with God. Mm -hmm. It's God's impetus. It's often invisible to you and I. We don't know what it was. I told this story one time about Sherry on the back of the motorcycle and yelling, oh, God, when we went over the, the bar ditch down into the barbed wire fence. You know, for her, that was the first time consciously she realized, I do believe there's a God. There's eternity built into the heart of man, but so often man just keeps rejecting it because it's never been sparked into existence by God. That's his job in election and so forth. Is that confusing but, or clear? Okay. All right. Um, Jesus said to men who are dead in their trespasses and sin, they're unable to, to respond to the call of God unless the light comes to them. And Jesus said to men, I am the light of the world. And this light is to say that Jesus came to reveal God fully. For God who said light shall shine in the darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts and give, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. You and I, are a, you, we can witness to the best of our ability. We can do the best apologetics. We can be so appealing in what we say and so, so desirous to see somebody come to Christ. But it's God who must give that first spark and that's what the Logos does, is gives that first spark 
that causes men to then get on the journey and move forward. Um, and it says that the light that shines in the darkness, the darkness does not comprehend it. What does comprehend mean? Just understand. understand. All encompass. All encompassing? To encompass. Okay. Yeah. It can mean that. Uh, when I think of comprehend, I go, you know, sometimes Gary's talking about science and I can't comprehend what he's saying. Can't get my mind you know? around. It's not anything to do with him and his ability to teach. It has more to do with my ability to hear and to understand. And so we, we often think of that, but it has several meanings. And it's a very good translation, actually, this word comprehend, because it, it sort of grabs hold of all those, like Chuck was talking about. It, it means to lay hold of or to overcome or to possess. It also means to understand or perceive. And John is telling us that the darkness, which opposes the light, is not able to either understand it. Men apart from Christ are lost in darkness. They cannot understand the truths that they see. The scientists will stumble after things and they discover facts, but they do not discover spiritual truth. They cannot do it. And um, it, the darkness opposes the light. It can't understand it, but it also cannot overcome it. We were uh, a couple of years ago in one of those cave experiences, you know, where you go way down underground. And they told us this horrible story about a guy that missed the elevator up and, you know, was down there for three days until people came back and, and how they found him, you know, just almost nuts. Because he, he was familiar with that, that place. That was when they were digging out this, uh, this uh, mine or whatever it was that they found down there, these caves. And uh, he, but three days without light, he was nearly crazy as he was down in there. And uh, they, but they, so they did what they always do. They shut out the lights. And then just a little tiny pinpoint of light, like a laser thing. And it's amazing what that illumined. And I thought, you know, that is really a good illustration. The darkness cannot overcome it. It cannot do that. We think that the darkness has overcome the sun because it's going to be dark outside when we leave. No, the sun just, you know, is in a different place, but the light didn't, or the darkness didn't overcome it. Tomorrow morning, the light will overcome the darkness. And that's the truth that he's trying to, to help us to see there. It, the darkness cannot understand the light. To them, it, it, those who are lost in darkness, it's strangeness, and they cannot understand it, and they also cannot overcome it. We think about that, and again, the tenses are interesting here. This is an heiress tense. Now, I want you to think with me a little bit. Were there times in the Old Testament when uh, people tried to wipe the Jews completely off the face of the earth? Yes, yeah. Yeah, there were. That's what the whole pogrom was going to be with Esther and Ahasuerus and, and so forth. And we can think of other ones. And then we, in our lifetimes, uh, some of us have had Hitler. And he tried to do exactly the same thing. We can go down through history and see times when, when man tried to completely erase the light. Um, I remember hearing that, um, I forget who the guy was. Uh, forgive me, this is a spontaneous illustration. But... He said that he was going to publish a book. He was one of these brilliant atheists to publish a book that would so destroy Christianity that um, it would, the Bible would not be printed anymore. Well, in the house where he wrote that statement, there was a, later on a printing press printing what? 
Bibles. It's just incredible. God's sense of humor in that whole thing. But darkness cannot overcome it. You and I live in a, a dark time. We're seeing a weak church. We're seeing a diminishment of the gospel and its influence in our society. And yet, the darkness will not ever be able to overcome it. In fact, in some ways, as it gets darker, you and I are going to shine brighter. Yeah. And people are going to seek us out when they've tried everything else. And they're going to try to do that. So, um, you know, the darkness cannot overcome the light. And um, equating light and life, and Jesus is a revelation of that. There's a whole bunch of things in there, but I would need to move on. Let's move on to his forerunner. Um, that's John 1, 6 through 8. And so, who have we got that? Pat, do you have that there? Sure. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Okay, this is uh, later on, we're exposed to the fact that this is John the Baptist. Remember, he's come into the, as a prophet after 400 years without any prophecy. There's been a complete cutoff. The Old Testament is finished. And it seems as though God has left his people to that and left them alone. But after 400 years, John comes on the scene. And John is such a fiery preacher. And he is preparing the way of the Lord. And men are drawn to him. And so we have those, that scene of his baptism later on in John when he's baptizing. And the soldiers say, what shall we do? And Because he's telling them, you know, to do the works of uh, that are indicative of the, uh, the righteousness that, that comes from faith and so forth. And uh, so John is, a, is an incredible, credible witness to, um, to the Logos. He's, uh, he's, he's going to give his witness. And what is the purpose of a witness? Is to verify a truth or to establish the credibility of something. And the greater the person is who's giving that witness, that's why in a trial of some kind, oftentimes we'll have character witnesses brought in, people that we respect their, their, uh, their honesty, we respect their position, and they come and they lay down what they know about this person. And so John comes on the scene, and he is a a major witness and we're going to see that fleshed out in chapter 3 although we probably aren't going to look at it too much but you know in this book there are seven witnesses this is another way that you can go through this whole book and follow it out but there's seven major witnesses first there's the witness of the father and that's found in John chapter 5 and uh, mostly and then in John chapter 8 and then there's the witness of Christ himself what does he say about himself a lot of times people say, well, he never claimed to be God, but he did. Every time he said, I am, he was making that statement. Oftentimes, well, like the woman at the well, he said to her, you know, I who speak to you am he. I am the one, you know. And uh, so there's the witness of Christ himself. Then there's the witness of the Holy Spirit. You know, who comes down upon him at, at his baptism and in other places. And then the greatest one that John's going to rely upon is the witness of Jesus' works. And we're going to trace those through, you know, these seven signs that he gives. But, you know, because people said, like the man who was born blind in uh, John chapter 9, he said, this we know, 
that God does not hear someone who is a sinner. Yet it's never been heard since the beginning of time that a man who was born blind was given his sight again. And, uh, and that we have this testimony of his works doing those things which, which no prophet had ever even attempted or thought about doing, and they all point to the fact that he is indeed God. And then there's the scriptures. Jesus keeps turning back to them. It is written of me, such and such, you know. You read your scriptures to, to find this, and yet I'm standing in front of you, he says. And then there's John the Baptist who is here. And then there's a variety of human witnesses, such as the disciples. You have all of that fleshed out in the rest of John after the prologue. Then you have uh, the Samaritan woman who testifies, come and see a man who told me all that I had ever done. Could this be the Messiah? I think she's got her tongue stuck way on her cheek, and she's saying, you blind idiots, this is the Messiah. Come and see him, you know? And then we have the man born blind, as I said, and then we have the multitudes, you know? No man can do the things that you, this man does unless God is with him. And so the prologue is an introduction to those proofs, and so he brings John in here. Now, what do we know about John? He was sent from God. He, he himself claims to be the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. A voice is calling, clear the way of the, for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low. Let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And then Malachi 3.1, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. So he came to bear witness to the light, and he came to bear witness to the light that people might believe in him, or believe in Christ. It's interesting that he's never called John the Baptist. You ever think about why that is? Everybody else designates him, you know, as, as the Baptist or, or the John the Baptist. What it is is a, a kind way. John exults in the fact that John the Baptist was on the scene. He reveres him. But at the same time, he diminishes his role because there were those who were speculating he was the light because they came to him and they, he bore testimony. I am not the light. But one comes after me, the sandal, whose sandal I'm not worthy to, to tie, and so forth. And he diminishes his role to put him in the proper place. And that's kind of what you and I have to do about Mary. What do we think about Mary, the mother of Jesus? We think that she's an incredible woman. Of all the women in the world, God chose her to take on the burden of having her, his son born through her. And she's an incredible example to us. Her magnificent is, a, is holiness personified in, if embodied in a human being. But what does Jesus say to her at the first miracle in Cana of Galilee? She comes to him and said, without a wine. He goes, oh, mom, come on, you know, it'll be all right. What are you to do with me? Yeah, he goes, woman. Now, that's not an insult, but Jesus is making a distinction. You are born of the flesh. You are sinful. And just like every other person, you've got to come to me as your Savior. You're no better. And so we reverence Mary in the sense that we respect her. 
but we don't worship her. We don't put her too high on a pedestal. And that's what, what uh, John does with, with uh, John the Baptist. And so he sent from God. He came to bear witness to Christ as the light. He came to bear witness of all, or that all might believe in him. And I think there's a great outline for evangelism there. I'm just going to throw this out at you. But the message isn't about you. You know? A lot of times we get hung up on our testimony and we glory in the details of everything on uh, how bad we were and how good Christ has made us and so forth. Get out of the way. The message isn't about you, you know. It isn't about me. Get your eyes and mind off yourself. Uh, tell people who Jesus is. That's what John the Baptist did. He kept pointing, pointing, pointing. You know, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You know, follow him. Go after him. He must increase. I must decrease. You know, so get Christ out there. Point to him. You know, I was sharing Christ with a, a fellow in my office when I was up in Oregon. And uh, he was telling me that he was a believer and so forth. And I said, well, then tell me who Jesus Christ is. And he stumbled around a little bit and told me a few facts that she was, he was born at Christmas and he was, you know, born uh, of a, a virgin and, and so forth. And he died on the cross and so forth. And I said, you know, uh, you don't know him. You do not know him. If you knew him, you would know far more than a few facts about his life. You can't say you believe in somebody you do not know. And so I encouraged him, and we did for a very short time, start working our way through the Gospel of John. We didn't get very far until he quit coming and, and meeting with me. But, you know, I've heard so many people over the years complain about hypocrites in the church. I'll just tell them, look, you're looking in the wrong place. Everybody out here is fallible. Look at Christ. He's the only one you should be looking at. So get their eyes on him. So the message isn't about you. Get people's eyes on Christ and appeal. Beg men to come to Christ. Today still is the day of salvation. Today is the day that they can still have grace and mercy. That's going to come to an end. But be earnest, but realize that God ultimately is sovereign. So, okay. Bill, comment? No. Mark? No. Anybody else? <laughs> Sharon? No? Okay. All right, Lee, you're on. His rejection, verses uh, 9 through 11. Uh, we got a few more minutes here. Bryce, you got that? 9 through 11? 9 through 11. <clears throat> that was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Okay, so what we have here is the pronouns are changing. It's no longer this ill-defined logos, but now it's a he, you know, and then we're going to culminate in verse 14. So he's using a masculine pronoun, and he throws something else in there. He was the true light, and uh, reading uh, D.A. Carson's commentary on this, he says that we could translate this and say that it means he was the full Expression, the genuine, genuine and complete uh, self-disclosure of God. And then to be laid out in opposition to every partial light that was existed before that. And all the additional partial lights that have come since then. You know, it's a, amazing. We were in the Muslim world for a long time. And they hold up the Quran 
and um, we were working with a Palestinian girl one time. My wife was sharing with her. This lady really um, got interested in Christ, and she took a, a New Testament, and she went home, and she didn't sleep for a whole day, and she read the whole New Testament. Then she read it again, and she came back to Sherry, and she said, you know, when I read this, I can see it's true, because you can read it and follow it all the way through, and it makes sense. When you read the Quran, you never know what he's talking about. It's so confusing. And so there was that, that glimmer of that, and, and that's Christ. He is, he's the genuine compared to all the other counterfeits and all the other partial revelations, the partial revelation or additional revelation of Joseph Smith, the additional revelation of, of Muhammad and other people like that. So genuine and complete disclosure of God. Jesus was sent into the world to enlighten every man. Now, some people was... They're bordering on universalism. They say, okay, see, the light's given to every man, every man understands, and then every man chooses to believe or not believe. Is that what that really means? No. No. Again, you've got to understand the context of every man. Every man that believes, there's general revelation, which convicts men of sin and condemns men, but there's special revelation that opens their eyes fully to believe. And he is the ultimate special revelation. The prophets spoke, giving us an information and understanding. And the, the others in the scriptures have done that, but Jesus is the final, full revelation of who God is. Every man doesn't mean he came to bring salvation to all. It means he came to shed light and that his light has touched every man. There's a universalism in that sense. And I think that's true. You know, um, I don't know. We haven't been everywhere in the world. I'm sure there are places in the Amazon rainforest where the people still haven't heard of Christ. But it is amazing how the gospel has gone to the far reaches of the world. And we know that every man has received enough light from general revelation to if he wants to, respond and move toward and find special revelation. If you ever want to read a really good missionary book, read this book called Bruchko. It's about a guy that Wycliffe wouldn't accept and so forth and a number of other mission organizations turned him down. He just hiked down to South America, went back in and found some tribe back in there and lived among them and so forth. And was they killed, tried to kill him at first, but when he survived, they said, okay, you can come and be a part of us. And, and he lived among them and everything. And, and he learned their language very, very well. And one day they were chopping through um, into the jungle and they chopped into a palm frond and if you realize those are just branches made up of a whole lot of fibers and they opened them up and they leafed through them just like you would leaf through a book like that and as they looked at that palm frond they said these are are the leaves and we have heard a story that one day there will be someone come who is white like you are. And he will tell us what has been written upon the leaves that tell us who the true God is because we've lost knowledge of him. And this guy, Bruce Olson, said, oh, I wouldn't know anything about that. 
You know, he said, man, this is exactly what I've been waiting for. And he shared the gospel and this tribe came in mass to Jesus Christ because of that. He pulled out his Bible. He started leafing through it like that and showed them this is the revelation of God. This is the story he's come to tell you. And he and he told them that story. And so the, the point here is that the gospel comes and every man is going to stand before God and the supreme question is going to be, who is Jesus Christ? What have you done with him? Men are going to fall upon that and break upon that shoal, and other men are going to stand in, in the light of eternal life because of that. He's a central figure in all of history. He's the one who does bring the light, and he's the only one that can into the life of, of every man. Um, people will believe or they'll harden their hearts. Okay. Let's look at verses 12 through 13, his reception. Okay. Um, you have that there, Chuck? Um, yes, I do. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Okay. This has been called um, a restatement of the purpose of the book it's he came um you know to to give life to men and uh to those who believe on his name so that's the first statement of it the last statement of it's found in john chapter 20 those verses we read in in 30 through 31 those are like bookends and there's some important words here that that john brings out and that first word is gave the end of the story is not the tragedy of rejection of Christ, but the grace of reception. The focus is on the fact that this grace has been given, that God gave his son, that, that the, the eternal life is a gift from God. And so he gave to everyone who believed this right to become children of God. He gave that to them. It's, it's a dispensation from God. And this word right focuses on a legal position. Those who come to faith, it speaks of the fact that this right becomes yours because you've been justified by the one who has the ability to grant you that right. It's a clemency for the crimes that you committed against him. And so you're legally brought into his presence. He gives you the right to become sons of God. You can't come to Christ on your own. You can't come on your own merit. You can only come if he gives you the right to come into his, his presence and be called his children. And that's a word choice that seems to differentiate between sons who might claim some kind of right. These children are the helpless ones. They're ones that have no claims. They can't make any claims. That's why when you have a child who um, something happens to him and he has to go to court, he has to have a, a legal representative who represents him in that situation because he's not able to stand up on his own. This word children really says you and I, again, cannot do it on our own. This has to have come from God. It's totally of him. It's totally through him. Okay? And as many as received him, this points to the great truth that will be fleshed out in chapters 3 and 4, the stories of Nicodemus and the woman at the well. And there, there are no natural-born children of God. You don't get in by means of blood, you know? It doesn't matter how righteous your mother or father were. You don't get in on their coattails. That doesn't happen. 
Um, this blood is always in the plural. It indicates that it's not by who your father was and it's not by who your mother was. That was important to the Jews because the father was all important in, in that whole thing, you know. And uh, later on, chapter 8, uh, Jesus will point out to the Jews that they're, though they're biological children of Abraham, their lineage really is that of the devil. That's, that's where they're coming from. So you're not, you don't become a, uh, a child of God by virtue of blood, your, your heritage. Or the will of the flesh refers to the decision of parents to have a child. Most of us have been there at some point. We open up ourselves and we decide to become, you know, to have children. And that's our will. But the Bible tells us that children are a gift from God, Psalm 127. Uh, so many people today are having trouble becoming pregnant. The natural process, they're trying to find out why that's broken down and why it isn't happening and so forth. It can all seem very natural, but every one of you ladies who bore a child, you conceived and carried to term because that was God's will. That was his design and his desire. And so it is with the second birth. And it's not by the will of man. Hannah sought to have children desperately. And it was God who finally had mercy on her and opened her womb and, uh, and gave her that. It's all of God. And that's what John keeps hammering at us. It's all of God. It's all of God. And we have to recognize that. Okay, I got a few more minutes here. Last thing we're going to look at is the last four verses, but we're only going to concentrate on, on verse 14. I think this is the... I'm probably arrogant to say this, but I think this is the greatest verse in the scriptures is John 114. Amen. Now, yeah. So, uh, June, can you read that for us? John uh, 1, 14 through 18. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and the truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Okay. As I said, we're just going to look at verse 14, but the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory. Glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And in that whole thing, he brings all those concepts together. For the Greek and for the Jew, the word, which was somewhat vague for the Jew, really obscure for the Greek, now becomes a person. And he is saying that it was in flesh and came out and dwelt among us. And there's just a, a visual picture here. Um, this, uh, the word... Uh, Let's see, where do I want to go with this? The language is, again, precise and carefully chosen. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Dwelt among us is really a word we translate tabernacle. The word 
tabernacled among us. And I think that's really important. It means literally to pitch one's tent. And it brought again the Jew back to the wilderness experience, back to when God gave the law to Moses, back to when the tabernacle was there and the and God was a pillar of, of light and a pillar of pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud, you know, for the, the people. And they knew where he was when he lifted up. The whole camp stirred and packed and did everything else. And where he went, they went. And he was a guard for them by day and by night and continually in their presence. And, um, you know, it just was, it's a beautiful picture that John is trying to bring into our consciousness. The tabernacle was in the center of Israel's <coughs> camp. Um, it was where God dwelt and then he gave orders for the tribes where they were to space themselves out around that. But it was the central focus of absolutely everything that was around them. And so Jesus becomes the central focus. He not only dwelt among us, but he said, if I am lift, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. He is the central focus of all of history. It comes back that we tried to obscure it. We no longer want to use AD and and uh, BC, we we want to use what the common period or common day or whatever it is, BCE or whatever. But I still write AD when I write it. So yeah. the tabernacle was also the place where the law of Moses was preserved, brought in, put into the ark of the covenant. The law ordered and maintained the life of Israel. It determined her moral, social, and worship orders. Jesus Christ perfectly kept the law and fulfilled all of its requirements. He therefore embodies the law of God. He fulfilled it. He came to fulfill that which was, was given previously and to flesh it out. The tabernacle was the dwelling place of God. The presence was symbolized by the Shekinah glory, um, which rose from the, as a pillar of fire and cloud. It guided the people. It guarded the people. It judged the people. And these are the roles of Christ. We have beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You think what it was like for John to be on that mountain of transfiguration and behold Christ in his glory. Think what it was like for him to see the outshining of God's glory as he stood in that boat on that rocky sea and said, Hush, be still. It was instantly still. Think of what it was like for him. Yet he's standing up there and he lifts his hands to the Father in prayer and then begins to tear the bread. Just keeps tearing. Just keeps tearing. It never ends. Never ends. Do you think some of I can just see it. The little kids are all down there going. <laughs> you know, that's the glory of God just shown out in so many ways. And John's going to expose this that to us. The tabernacle was a place of revelation. Jesus is the final revelation of God and he, he dwells in our midst and as you and I read our scripture don't we continually find new things in it, things that just astound us? I, I don't know how many times I've heard somebody say, I've just been reading the book of such and such and I, I see stuff and I've never seen that before. I've had to read that book at least 30 times and I, I can't believe I never saw that before and that's that revelation of God. It's the same thing when those angels are around the throne and they fall down on their faces and they, they say holy 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 Lord God Almighty and I think God just showed them something else just showed them another aspect of himself that they'd never seen before and I just think we have an eternity to look forward to that 
The tabernacle was also a place where sacrifices were made. The outer court of the tabernacle, near the opening of the courtyard, had a brazen altar. And so as you entered, the offering, the symbolized death, had to be there. There was also a place where you had to cleanse yourself. Between these two pictures, you have a picture of a person has to enter God's presence through sacrifice and cleansing. And Jesus Christ embodies all of that. He's caught up in the sacrificial system. He is the one who sacrificed himself for us. He is the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. The tabernacle is a place before which the people of Israel worshiped. That's where they would point. Moses would go into the tent of meeting and all the people would stand outside their tents and wonder what God and Moses were doing in there. But when worship took place, it was the place where everyone gathered to worship and lift their praises to God. And Jesus Christ serves that function today. He's the only one worthy of worship. He's the only way to truly worship God is by knowing him and coming in through him. And the tabernacle was filled, as I said, with the Shekinah glory of God. The idea is seen as John's falling statement, we beheld his glory. It's a symbol, the manifestation of the presence of God. That's what Jesus Christ is, the manifestation of the presence of God. Unseen by us today, but nonetheless here in full influence upon our, our, our um, lives. So there's a glimpse in just 18 verses, and I've done a poor job of actually telling you all that is in there. This is an amazing, amazing thing, but it's a, it's a preview of all that John will share. And so in the next 20 weeks, I'll try to help. No, I'm just <laughs> Next week, we'll try to get through, you know, some of this in a much less detail. But I wanted to lay that down so that you could walk out, hopefully, having some of your perspective changed about who Jesus Christ is. So we got one minute. Any questions, comments, thoughts? No? All right, let me close this in prayer. Lord, grateful are we that you have written this. I just pray that once again, our perspective has been broadened a tiny bit. Most of this we already knew, but again, just to be reminded of it, how gracious you are to have had it written down so that we can see it and review it. May it cause us to want to know you in a deeper way. May it cause us to hunger to dig into this book even deeper. We ask that you would bless us as we go from here. Thank you for being with us in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Amen.